All right, so I, I had a job. I guess I could say where it was. It doesn't matter. It was at UPS. Love the people there, but I could not wait to clock out of that job every day. Early in the morning, loading boxes, and it was an intense environment. Again, I love the guys that were my, my superiors outside of the job, but it wasn't so much fun inside the job because they were just telling me what to do just in ways to me that I was not used to as a sweet little sentimental guy. And so I couldn't wait to clock out because one thing is for sure, if those guys were to treat me that way outside of that professional setting, I would have just looked at them like, who do you think you are? You can't tell me what to do. You have professional authority in my life, but you don't have any personal authority. Now, my dad growing up was a totally different story. Right? My dad would tell me when I went to school, right or wrong, if you get in trouble at school, it's going to be even worse when you get home. Because my father was not just a professional authority, he was a personal authority. But I also had a good dad. So when you have a good dad, professional authority is not as good as personal authority. And as the saying I think that's become a little cliched now goes, is that professional religion, this is the perspective it brings. If I get in trouble, if I mess up in life, I think, oh no, I hope dad doesn't find out. And you start to scheme and rationalize and minimize. But a personal gospel relationship is, oh no, I messed up. I better call dad. That can make all the difference in how all of us in here relate with the Father. And the question this morning is, how many of us have a professional relationship with God, but not a personal relationship? I know that language of personal relationship can sound so kind of silly or even trite, but there's a reason why that's something we've came back to again and again. And however overused it may feel to you, I want you to at least call the bluff on that voice of cynicism in your head this morning that maybe that is exactly where you need to do some work. I wonder how many of us, and all of us in certain ways, treat God as a professional authority but not a personal one. And how do you relate to someone who is your professional authority? It's almost always with an element of fear, of anxiety. When am I going to let this person down? When am I going to be called into the office? But when we relate to God professionally, then we miss out on experiencing God powerfully. And I'm not talking about emotional highs or some standard of experience. I'm talking about even the power of just knowing someone is present with you and for you, even in silence. Broken people never feel like they can make it professionally. Burnout people never think they can measure up professionally. And bored people never feel like there's any meaning because it's just all professional. It's just a grind. It's just a clock-in, clock-out relationship. But there's really, really good news for us this morning. Is God does not want to have a professional relationship. God has not called you just to come and work for him. And actually, when you view yourself as an employee of God and not a child of God, 
then you find yourself unwittingly, maybe even unintentionally, in the same place we find these religious leaders this morning. Someone who turns what was intended into a relationship, into a profession that brings a burden on yourself and on others and misses the kingdom of God. What we're being called to this morning, I believe, is to engage Jesus personally as king, not professionally, if we want to experience him powerfully as king. How do we do this? Before we go any further, we just got to take a moment and ask yourself an honest question that makes all the difference. Do I really want that? Do I really want to know Jesus more personally? It's kind of scary. I mean, these guys are afraid in this text. These religious leaders who look so strong and powerful, I don't know if you noticed that, but they won't answer Jesus' question at the beginning because they fear the crowd, and, and they won't stand up for actually even what they believe at the end in a way that's open and honest because they fear the crowd. Jesus causes us to ask ourselves some honest questions about, do I really want this? because you will not be in control of where it goes. That's super scary. So how do we get there? The first thing is we do need to acknowledge the areas in our lives where we have a professional relationship with Jesus' authority. We see this in this first question, that these leaders are asking Jesus a question that is challenging his authority. They want to know, who does this guy think that he is? If you notice again in verse 23, Jesus is in the temple. He's teaching now. Last week, we saw he was healing people. The week before, or even in that week, we saw he was cleansing the temple. Jesus is coming into this temple like he owns the place. But this is a, this hit guy from Nazareth, this hillbilly from Galilee... He doesn't have a rabbi. You know, who's your authority? Who said you could do this? Now, their question is not sincere, and Jesus reveals this, and so he asks them a question. Now, this is not Jesus not necessarily wanting to answer the question. He's going to answer it very clearly before the end of this morning in these parables, and very clearly before the end of this week, and he's also already answered it very clearly in what he's doing in the temple, where he's doing it how he's doing it. But Jesus here in rabbinic tradition, this is a way they would relate a lot. If somebody would ask a question, somebody else would ask a question. And they would even use these sort of riddles and statements. And so Jesus here, master teacher, uh, one commentator called him the Riddler, the master Riddler, you like Batman stuff. And, and Jesus puts them in a, in a position where they can't answer. They know that if they say that John, his authority was from heaven, then Well, John said Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But John's also a hero. He's a a people's hero. He's a martyr who died under King Herod's rule. So, well, if we talk bad about the hero, then everybody else is mad at us. And so they answer, it probably was kind of embarrassing. Smartest guys in the town, right? We don't know. Jesus doesn't answer what they really don't care to know. What is he doing? He's exposing their heart. We often have questions about Jesus and his authority in our lives, but we've got to be honest. Do we really want an answer? If that answer is going to inconvenience us, if that answer is going to cause us to change our narrative of our lives and of the world, I'm going to do something that no sane pastor in the world would do this morning. And I'm going to bring up the He Gets Us ad. All right? Everybody just get nervous, right? 
but I'm also not, not going to give you any answers or tell you what I think about it, except a little bit. Everybody wants to have a public position. So let's say you're on the side that says, we should only be washing fellow believers' feet. Well, how's that going for you? Are you doing that? I just wonder if you're on the other side and you're like saying, no, we need, we need to be out here loving everybody. This is what this is about. This is about grace. This isn't about drawing hard lines in the sand. Okay. How's that going? Tell me about this last week, whatever side that you're on, how your professional opinion played out in your personal life. Jesus has not come to make us the ruler of the comment sections on Facebook. That's not what the kingdom of God looks like. Jesus is saying here, you want to ask these questions, but you really don't want to get involved. You have a fear of man, you have this anxiety, and when certain questions come up, you get really nervous and you want a really clear answer so that you can feel safe. But do you really want to follow me? So we've got to ask ourselves, where are we relating with Jesus professionally? What is sincere in our questions? And what are questions that are just questions that can keep us from having to avoid dealing with who Jesus really is? Is God able, is God so powerful that he's able to make a rock that he can't lift? I don't know. But did you trust him with your fears this week? How are spouses supposed to love their one another? How are roommates or sweetmates supposed to love one another? Well, I mean, we could write books on it, and those things are good. But how are you loving one another? The guy comes up to Jesus and says, who's my neighbor? And Jesus tells that classic parable, it's like, Anybody you walk by who needs your help? Well, I don't like that answer. I want you to give me a list of people that I'm supposed to love and maybe a list of people I don't have to love. And Jesus is like, I'm not here to give you a list. I'm here to give you a new life. This leads to our second point. So we can't just, to, to live in this personal relationship, not just a professional, we've got to acknowledge the pockets where it's just a professional relationship, asking questions, debating topics, right, but no skin in the game. Uh, I know some of you college students, I went to a Bible college too, right? Those late night debates, right, in the middle, everybody's debating, you know, and, and, and nobody, nobody's even worried about doing anything, 
thank goodness you college students are different who are here, but that was, that was my experience. So we've got to align our relationships. So not just acknowledge where it's, where it's professional in many ways, but we've got to align it personally with his authority. Now, Jesus tells two parables. So Jesus doesn't answer their question, and he does answer their question. But he, does, he answers their question first with a question, and then he answers their question with two stories. Really three. We're going to get to the third one next week. It's just too, too rich. They all are, but the next one we got to give a whole week to. But the first one here is the parable of the two sons. So there he asked Jesus, who do you think you are? Now Jesus is kind of saying, who do you think you are? And he tells this parable of the two sons in verses 28 through 32. We, I mean, I've read it already. You've heard it, right? You got one son who says, I'm not going to do what you say, dad. But then he does it anyway, changes his mind. Then you got the other son who's like, I will do it. And I hope you notice, I tried to accent it in the reading. I'll do it, sir. Right? Eddie Haskell. Some, nobody knows who that is anymore. But anyway, and then he, and then he doesn't do it. Who obeyed? The one who actually did it. Now, this, this, this is masterful teaching. You know why? Jesus doesn't give them the third option. Who do you think they think they are? We're the ones who both say we'll do it and we'll do it. That son's not in the story. Je- Jesus does us like this. He, he doesn't give them the option that they want because he wants them to have to do justice with their reality. They are all talk, all serve to God all the time. They're all rank, they're all ritual, they're all representation, but they don't actually do what he wants. Because what does he want? We've been learning in Matthew, he really wants mercy. He doesn't care so much, we'll get in chapter 23, that they tied their spice rack, right? 10% of my cumin, 10% of my dill, super faithful. He says, what about justice? What about mercy? What about love? You guys look good, but you don't do it. On the other hand, we've got these tax collectors and prostitutes. Now, we use that language a lot, but for we just need to to hear how that would have felt. They don't know how to do anything right in terms of the, the, I don't know what the Bible teaches about spices, but whatever Jesus says, we'll do. So the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom before the chief priests and the scribes, the elders, the Pharisees. This is a scandalous teaching. A scandalous teaching. I have an example, but I'm going to, I just feel like I need to skip it, but I'm going to, yeah. This is the good news, though, for the broken burnout on the board, is you don't have to know all the stuff. You don't. There can be a person who's a doctorate in theology and a person who just does what they, Jesus calls them to do. And Jesus says the doer is the child, not the debater. 
I remember hearing this story, I think I've shared it before, in in an international missions context where this certain people group was seeing such growth in discipleship and come to find out all they had was the Gospel of Matthew. They didn't have the whole Bible. Only the Gospel of Matthew had been translated into into their native tongue. And yet they were seeing this like kind of church planning movement grow up. And, and the Americans got there and they're like, oh no, <laughs> all you got is Matthew. And yet you're experiencing so much more of the kingdom than we are. How, what was the explanation? Well, we actually do what it says to do in the gospel of Matthew. <laughs> that might be all we got, but there's a lot to do there. There's a lot to repent of. There's a lot to change. There's a lot to grow. There's so many questions that we have about doctrine and theology and all that, and it so matters, right? Truth matters. But the question is, what are we doing with what we have? What are we doing with it in our homes, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our dorms, in our missional communities? in the work that we do in our own story. Are we, just, are we just hearing things or are we listening? I could say so much more there, but next to the parable of the wicked tenant. So again, we read this parable, but just a, a quick summary. Uh, the landowner leases out this land to these tenants. They become stewards. They're the ones that are going to work the land. They're the ones that are going to be responsible for the land. And when that land produces fruits from the harvest, then the landowner will receive those fruits. There will be a blessing, a bounty. Everybody goes around. Over time, though, the tenants, the stewards, the tenant, the ones that are taking care of it, they start to feel like they own the place. They start to act like this is ours. Entitlement creeps in. Ownership creeps in, and so when the landowner sends his servants to retrieve the fruit, they're like, no thanks. We did the work. This is ours. And so they beat them. They stone them. They kill them. He sends more. They do the same. Finally, he thinks, well, I'll send my son. Surely they'll respect him. Instead of respecting him, they're like, this is the, this is the way to cut the, the head off this snake, right? We're going to kill this thing once and for all. If we kill the son, then this is ours. There's nobody else to inherit it. And so they do so. And then the end is, what do you think the landowner's going to do? He's going to come. There's going to be judgment. And guess what? You don't get to be the stewards of the land anymore. Now these, again, if, if they're not ticked off already... <laughs> What Jesus is saying to them is you, you were given this stewardship over the kingdom of God and you've made it about yourself to the point that there's this whole history of the killings of prophets, the killings of people that were sent to you, and now they don't realize it probably, but now you're about to fulfill this whole prophecy, this story of killing the very Son of God. By whose authority are you doing this, Jesus? He's saying here, I'm the Son of the owner who's come to claim what is the father's and you're going to kill me. Some people think that they could have missed this. They might have thought that he was talking about Rome at first. Obviously, they get it at the end. But there's a sense in which this is true because self-deception is a tricky thing. We often miss our roles in the story. 
It's scary, but sometimes at the end of certain movie scenes in our life, we thought we were the good guy, and we end up being the bad guy. Many people relate this to Nathan's confrontation of David in the Old Testament. If you remember that, David committed adultery with Bathsheba, and he thought, well, I've, I've manipulated and schemed and got everything just right. And then Nathan shows up and tells him this story about a man who had all these sheep, and, and then he went and took this other guy's one little precious lamb, and he says, what do you think should happen to that guy, David? And David says, oh, man, let's... I don't remember the exact words. Let's tar and feather him, hang, string him up, get, kill him, get rid of him. And these classic words in the scriptures, Nathan looks at David and he says, Thou art the man. You are the man. Jesus is setting them up for a you are the man situation here. What will the landowner do? They answer, this is what he's going to do. And Jesus turns and says, this is what's happening to you. Why? Because you're all ownership and no faithful stewardship. And anybody who's came along to try to challenge your narrative or your role and to call you to repentance, to enjoy the good gift and opportunity God's given you, you've just rejected them. Who is the obedient son? It's Jesus. Uh, I hope this isn't nerding out too much. A luthier is a guitar builder. All right, so hang with me. Builds guitars, and a luthier, we could imagine how you might best glorify a luthier. So he builds these guitars. How might you most show him praise, show him glory? There's a couple routes that you could take. What you could do is you could take a guitar, and you could talk about it a lot. And you could just care about all the details, which is fine. So you might say, oh, man, this has a an moon spruce Adirondack top. It is uh, back and sides of Brazilian Rhodeswood taken from a shipwreck pirate ship or whatever. And, and then you might talk about how it was formed, and you might say it's a, it has forward-shifted bracing with scalloped braces and, and all this, and, and it's this, this mother-of-pearl inlay and all, all of these different things. And then you might just talk about it, and then you might put it in this, this just awesome humidified case that's glass, and you can see it all of the time. And that might be good. But from what I understand, what is the real way that the luthier is going to be glorified? You're going to play it. And you're going to, you're going to hear those, that dry, woody sound with those nuanced overtones. And, and, and you're going you're gonna to enjoy it, and other people are going to enjoy it. You're going to feel that resonance coming, coming from the body, going up the neck of the guitar, somehow mysteriously into your soul. And you might not even mention the luthier's name sometimes. But there's this, there's this glory you participate in and there's this glory that others share in that is that whether you're doing that in a professional way or not it is deeply personal and deeply powerful God made us as his instruments to live or play our lives for his glory 
Jesus has come to set us free from thinking that the goal of our lives is this sort of anxious caretaking that doesn't actually live and love. That happens when we don't realize whose we are. These leaders thought the kingdom was theirs. These leaders thought they were their own. It's why these words in 1 Corinthians really, really connect here. I don't know if Paul was thinking about this. He says this in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you were bought with a price. So glorify your God in your body. This calls us to a deep aligning of our relationship with Jesus in a personal way, not just professional. So we've got to ask ourselves some questions about our sonship. Do we see ourselves as true sons? Well, are we more concerned about the minimum that Jesus is calling us to do? That's a sign that you're relating in a professional relationship with God. Just tell me how much I have to do, and I'll do that. Just tell me that, right? That's a professional relationship. Or tell me how this is to be managed. If you are in a minimums mindset or a management mindset, it's professional. Am I more concerned about being right? I'm not saying it doesn't matter to be right. Please do not hear me saying that. But am I more concerned with being right than being in relationship with God and others? Am I more driven by doing stuff for Jesus than actually being with Jesus? And do the fruit of the Spirit matter to me when I think of discipleship? Now, how can I align? To align, you've got to stay with the story of grace, right? You've got to find yourself lining up with the tax collectors and the prostitutes. How, how am I like them? All of a sudden, grace makes me grateful. I don't got to own anything. I don't got to possess anything. I'm just happy to be here. I'm not the guy who got box seats at the Super Bowl and is mad because they don't have cashews. They only have peanuts. Right? Like, I'm like, how did I get here? I can't believe I'm here. There's a freedom that comes from that in the place of a bitterness and a possessiveness. We stay focused on what matters. When we see things that, that, that we want to change, like, man, I wish there were more cashews here. Because I'm grateful to be here, what will I do? I'll go get some cashews. <laughs> I, I've told this story so many times in the life of our church, but... Of, of me going to, to do the church planning residency, learn what it looks like to be in a church like ours. I don't want to tell the whole story again, but I, I just feel like I just need to keep telling it forever. And how I got so disillusioned, right? This is not how this church was supposed to be. They, did, they were not honest. They said we were going to do this and do that and life on life, life on mission, blah, 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 family. I don't feel it. I don't feel like I'm experiencing it. And, and how I felt, you know, like I got bitter, distant, you know, leaders you need to be different and then it just hit me one day as I was working in that factory 
Why don't you just do it? <laughs> you think people should ha be having more people over? Have them over. <laughs> you think missions should be done, take place in this way? We'll do it. <laughs> don't get in this mindset of, I've got to get the paperwork right so that I can feel safe. Get in the mindset of, Jesus, what are you calling me to do? Tax collectors and prostitutes weren't worried about the paperwork. <laughs> they just wanted to follow Jesus and love him and have other people experience what they've loved, what they've experienced in his love. There's a freedom in that. We also need to assess our stewardship. Is it personal or professional? When we think about our own lives as temples of the Holy Spirit, do we realize that we are not our own? I don't know if that's a controversial statement in our current culture. I didn't come up with it. You know, I read it there. Like, we're not our own. And you know what? That's really good news. It means that you don't have to hold it all together. You don't have to be everything for everybody. But it does mean you have to let go and entrust your life to Jesus. Are there prophets in your life that you're killing? People God's sending into your life with messages saying, hey, maybe pay attention to this. Maybe it's just your personal time in God's word. Maybe it's friends. Maybe it's something you're hearing, something you're listening to. And, every t and you can feel it touches a nerve, and you turn it off. <laughs> and maybe this morning Jesus is just inviting you into the freedom to listen and to grow and to change. You see, that's the difference in the younger son and the older son in that parable. It says, or whether it's younger or older, the, the one that ended up obeying changed his mind. Do you realize? Like, we need to be people who have the humility to change our minds. And say, you know, I did said this, but I'm not going to do that. We got to crucify our pride and be the type of people who are like, yeah, I know I said I will not, but I will. <laughs> That's repentance. There's an old, old prayer. I think I read it a few weeks ago. It's, it's, it's called the Suspici, I think. I can't do Italian, but uh, somebody can correct me. The take and receive. Take, Lord, and receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, and my entire will, all that I have and possess. Thou hast given it all to me. To thee, Lord, I return it. All is thine. Dispose of it wholly according to thy will. Give me only thy love and thy grace, for this is sufficient for me. Well, this takes a lot of trust. So this gets us to our last point. And as we come to the Lord's table, where once again, Jesus is going to say, I got you. I'm with you. And we're going to eat and we're going to drink that good news. But we see this at the end. So we acknowledge the areas in our life where it's a professional relationship. We align our lives with a personal relationship. Last thing is we anchor ourselves personally in Jesus as the cornerstone of his kingdom. 
So through these verses 42 through 46, Jesus changes this metaphor to these stones, this building. He takes this from the Old Testament, from Psalm 118. There's this new metaphor again in this building, and a cornerstone, it's debated, was either in the foundation or like at the top of building in the archway or the corner, but debate that all day long. It was a very central key part of holding the building together, all right? That is very important. And the stone that the builders rejected, the one they're like, this thing is not even good enough to go in the building. Let's throw it away. Let's get rid of it. In the parable, let's discard it. Let's kill it. Becomes actually the stone that holds everything together. If you remember this verse in Scripture, this is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in that. Probably somebody's mama woke them up with that in the morning and annoyed you to death. I don't know. This is the day that the Lord has made. I'll rejoice and be glad in it. That's the verse right after this one in Psalm 118. What is the day that we rejoice in? It's the day that the stone that's rejected is vindicated as the cornerstone. Now, this is why we have such hope in this text, is if we anchor our lives in Jesus, yes, it's going to be a step of faith. Yes, it's going to feel risky. Yes, it's going to mean that I no longer live my life under the fear of man. But we can know that we are anchoring ourselves to the one who holds all the universe together. The one who holds all things together. The one who at the end of this book is going to say, speak to this matter of authority again that they ask. Who gave you authority? He's going to say, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me by the Father. Now go and make disciples of all nations. This kingdom will no longer be relegated or regulated to one particular country in the world. It's going to be given to all the nations, he says at the end of this parable, at the end of this text. And all nations, Israel and Gentiles together as one in Christ. And we are a part of that. This is the good news. But for us to enjoy it, we've got to see where we're building our lives. Are we anchoring our lives in Christ? Or are we anchoring our lives in our own self-protective approaches to our kingdoms? So as we close back to another job, I have an, another job I was at that I actually really liked. This job, I was grateful to be there doing the work, and then one day, my colleagues invited me to lunch. And I don't know if it's because of my shame or whatever, but I was like, oh, wow, this is great. I get to go be with the guys. And at that lunch, man, they're just talking to me like I'm a friend. I'm getting let in on some other, you know, insider information. And then it becomes a normal thing. And you're like, we are friends. And I went from, I just work here, to we're friends. This is what Jesus wants to happen with all of us in his kingdom. He wants you to transition from, hey, I just work here, to we're friends. And in the power of that relationship, then, we can find ourselves enjoying it like the tax collectors and the prostitutes. Instead of living like an employee, for a king who didn't die 
so that we would have to live with such fear. Broken people that are here and parts of all of us, a professional relationship will never heal the wounds in our hearts. Burnout people, a professional relationship will never give you rest. Bored, a professional relationship will never make you feel like you really have meaning in your life. But a personal relationship with Jesus is the king, the cornerstone. Will set us on a path where we can experience the power of the freedom of the kingdom. Father, we thank you for this time that you've given us around your word this morning. We ask that what is true, you would help to set us free. And what I've said that, that isn't, that it would just fall away or be discerned as false. But we thank you now as we come to your table that you would help us, Lord, to see the one thing that is true and good and beautiful above all things. You broken for us, your blood shed for us in the reality of your resurrection and your eternal reign. In Jesus' name, amen.